today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 549. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, as we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Merry Christmas. Um, it's Christmas Sunday, and that's the Sunday on the week of Christmas, I remember growing up and people used to say, I'm pretty sure everyone here is familiar, people used to say Merry Christmas throughout the whole season, but now it's like Merry Christmas is like too early, bro. Um, so it, that's, that's, that's changed. But um, I did want to share and go over with you all why it's important to celebrate Christmas. And so every year I feel like I do something like this during this day, but for many of us, and I, I want to go kind of like back, if that makes sense. So I'm going to try to go back from today and try to go back in time. But for many of us, when we think of Christmas, we think of older times, um, times when we were younger. Uh, we think of traditions with our families, gifts that we've gotten we ask, what was your favorite gift that you got? Uh, then you probably have something that will come into your mind. And up until recently, I remember even right after Thanksgiving, you turn on the radio, and what is it that you hear? Like the day after Thanksgiving, you would hear Christmas carols. We think of traditions. We think of Christmas carols. We think of older times, if I start to sing, I'm, and everybody just knows what the song is, right? And because this, when we start listening to Christmas carols and things like that, we know that we are thinking and these songs are just playing on our heads. And if we sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, um, that was, that's a beautiful song. It's actually one of the first secular Christmas carols, one of the first that uh, we saw in mass production. Uh, it is um, the best-selling single of all time. Um, it was uh, 
with over 50 million copies sold. Uh, but um, it was made popular by Bing Crosby in 1942. And White Christmas isn't a Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby didn't write it, he performed it, he made it popular. But White Christmas was written by a man named Irving Berlin, and he wrote it because he was reminiscing also. He was reminiscing of an older time, a time when he was younger, a time of snow. And he was in a hotel in California, and then he was thinking of this song, and he wrote White Christmas in a hotel in California when the sun was out and it was a really nice day. And actually, the first verse of White Christmas, when it was first written, I'm going to read it for you, is this. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. I've never seen such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A., but it's, the Dece it's December 24th, and I'm longer, I'm, I am longing to be up north. So Irving first wrote the song as a parody of sorts, and he wrote it for a musical that would be called Holiday Inn. But on December 7th, so he's writing this song, and he, he's like, you know, showing it to like Bing Crosby, and he's getting all these songs ready for this musical, and he's going over these songs. It's like, this is how I want to do it. It's like, okay, this is going to be the challenge. And as soon as he played uh, White Christmas for Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby was like, you don't have to worry about this one. This one is a clincher. And so he was writing this song, and they were preparing for this, but on December 7th of 1941, as you all may know, America, without warning, was blindsided by the Japanese at the port in Pearl Harbor. And so the attack commenced on December 7, 1941, at 7.48 a.m. The base was attacked by 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft that included fighters and bombers and torpedo bombers, and it was in two waves. And they launched attacks uh, against... Um, from six aircraft carriers, but they launched attacks against eight U.S. Navy battleships, and all were destroyed, four were sunk. The Japanese also sank or damaged three cruisers, three destroyers, an anti-aircraft training ship, and one mine layer. A total of 188 U.S. aircraft were destroyed, and 2,403 Americans were killed, and 1,178 others were wounded. And so in response, President Franklin D. Roosevelt summoned the military leaders to the White House and then ordered bombing raids on Japan because the country was at war. With all of this happening, it was December 24th on that same month, on that same year, that Bing Crosby introduced this song, White Christmas, on his radio program. And then after he introduced it, we saw a record number of men enlist to the military by late December. So what was written as a spoof of sorts took on a whole new meaning for the soldier who was longing for a time just like the ones I used to know. And then Berlin even... Uh, Irving Berlin eventually took off the first verse. So that first verse that I read, he took it off because he wanted to honor the support of his listeners. And he would say that. 
And so the version that we are all familiar with, the version that sold 50 million copies, is the one without the first verse. The tune is a little melancholy, but it really exudes the sentiment of nostalgia. Many attribute the success of the song for the ability to bring people back, and you're bringing people back to a time that they long for, maybe some simpler times. And according to Crosby's nephew, Howard, he says this, I once asked Uncle Bing about the most difficult thing he had ever ever had to do during his entertainment career, and he, and he said in December 1944, he was in a USO show with Bob Hope and the Andrew sisters, and they did an outdoor show in northern France, and he had to stand there and sing White Christmas with 100,000 GIs and tears without also breaking down himself. And we know that right after that, they went into the battle that we know called the Battle of the Bulge, where many of them lost their lives and they were never able to see home again. And we, for many of us, when we think of a white Christmas, we think of a white Christmas that brings us back, but there are special pictures to that white Christmas. What is that special picture? And for many of us, so you, you can have Christmas cards or postcards that you've given away it's like, you know, a snowy backdrop or things like that. But if it's a generic kind of postcard, a lot of it is set in the Victorian era. A picture may, might, that might come to mind for many of us is um, a picture with snow on the roofs of these Victorian era houses, men with top hats, women with Victorian dresses. And that idea is mainly from Charles Dickens. So even that idea of a white Christmas that people have had brought people back to that Victorian era. So I hope you try to follow. I'm just going to continue to go back. But that kind of picture is from Charles Dickens. And you should all probably know that it really doesn't snow in London, especially in late December. It doesn't snow around then too. So Charles Dickens really made that imagery very popular with all his writings, especially his Christmas writings, like what probably all of us read in school, A Christmas Carol. So he would bring people back. And so many of you know it doesn't really snow in London, but he lived in a time when the Industrial Revolution brought drastic change to the world and to the family. It took people out of the countryside and brought them into the city. It took women and children out of the home and put them to a place that they never participated before. They put them into work. And this was a time when new technology then broke up families and then broke up traditions. And when he wrote his famous Christmas stories, he was actually bringing people back to earlier times, simpler times. And it just so happened that all of his stories contained a lot of snow. But interestingly enough, and I said, it doesn't snow in London. Interestingly enough, Dickens grew up in the coldest decade that England had ever seen in this, since the 1690s. So there was a decade where it would just snow and snow, and it was so cold. The winters were so cold in England. Even the River Thames, it froze over. 
and it never freezes over. And so people would set up tents on the river and they would do like shows, like not just skate, but they would like get an elephant and then bring the elephant across the river because they, would just, they just thought it was amazing that the river was frozen. Dickens was actually born in 1812 and that's exactly when that decade of these very, very cold winters was happening. Christmas was a very bitterly cold experience. And so when he wrote his stories, he was actually hearkening back to an earlier time of when he was a child. As he grew up, his life wasn't easy. His father was sent to debtor's prison. And debtor's prison is when you accumulate too much debt and you can't uh, pay it off. You have to go to prison and work it off. We have a pretty similar system here now. We just don't call it debtor's prison. Anyway, he would be sent to debtor's prison. But when you, the father gets sent to de debtor's prison, the wife and the kids would also be sent to work as well. And so he, would, he had to be taken out of school as a young child and work at the Warren's Blacking Warehouse, where he pasted labels on boot polish. And this was a really traumatic experience for him. And it comes out in his writings and in his books. Because debt crushes the soul and it destroys the family. But here's the point. Even in the Victorian era, People even then, so we hearken back to White Christmas, White Christmas harkens back to a Victorian era. Even people in the Victorian era were hearkening back to earlier times. And as for me, I think it seems reasonable that all these Christmas carols sound old. It harkens us back to an earlier time. Even people with rough lives, they remember a time perhaps when they were younger when it wasn't that rough, and in fact, maybe it was good. Perhaps they remember the Christmas holiday, how during a certain time of year, all the streets and all the stores were changed. Lights would line up everything that you saw. When you drove down the street, you couldn't drive without seeing Christmas lights to your left and right on every telephone pole or light lamppost or whatever that you saw. And so here we also have our Christmas tree behind me with its lights. And that tradition goes back to the 1500s when everyone was decorating their Christmas trees. Everyone was decorating their Christmas trees. They were putting it outside to show it off. And Martin Luther, the reformer, he was thinking about Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And he was thinking about Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And he was like, you know what we should do? We should light up the tree, not like burn it down, but light up the tree. And so he started putting candles on trees. And that's where Christmas lights come from. That's where any kind of Christmas light, the idea comes from, that Martin Luther thought Jesus is the light of the world. We should show it in our decorations. And so he would put candles on the trees. In fact, uh, this is why you should continue to water your Christmas trees um, especially back then, people would know you better water those trees, otherwise it'll, it'll go up in flame, right? But even now, even if you have electric lights, if you have a real tree, you should water it, otherwise it may go up in flames as well. But there are traditions out there that hearken us back, and it goes back and back and back. There's another tradition that hearkens us back, and that if you 
you are all familiar with the tradition of Santa Claus. Originally, Santa Claus was named after St. Nicholas. And he was a man that lived all the way back in the 4th century. And he was known to be a generous man, and especially to children. There are legends of him giving to the poor, including the dowry for three virgins, which you might all be familiar with already. But this is why we have Santa Claus. And this is why Santa Claus started to give gifts to children. And then how do they give gifts? To, how does he give gifts to children? He needs to go through the window. That's weird. Let's not do the window thing. He goes down the chimney. That's pretty cool. But a man can't fit down a chimney, so they made him into an elf. And then an elf can fit down the chimney. That's why Santa Claus is an elf. An elf can fit down the chimney and then give gifts. However, when, it came to Amer when Santa Claus came to America, we made him fat. So now this fat elf fits down a chimney somehow, right? But this all is from St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was fiercely Trinitarian. And there was a um, heretic out there by the name of Arius. And he promoted this heresy. He thought that Jesus was not originally God. In fact, that he was begotten, meaning he was born. So there was a time when, when he once was not. So that's a heresy. He didn't like Arius. So there's even a legend of Nicholas punching out Arius the heretic. I personally think that's a better legend than the fat guy going down the chimney. However, all these traditions what I'm trying to say is they hearken us back. And to the times it hearkens us back, those times hearken us back even further. And it hearkens us back to the early Christians celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ on December 25th. There are critics who will say that this is really a pagan holiday of either Sol Invictus or Saturnalia that Christians somehow took over. And again, I'll say this, every year I say this, there's no evidence for this. Saturnalia, which is the worship, it's a Roman worship of the pagan god Saturn. Saturnalia was celebrated on December 17th, and then it went forward from there. So the date is wrong there. Sol Invictus is the celebration of the Roman sun god, right? And that's at the winter solstice, which is the longest night of the year. And because... The, the long, you know, because the night is long, it seems like the night defeated the sun. And so you celebrate it on the winter solstice. And then the night is the longest night. And then, ah, and then it just gets longer and longer. So Sol Invictus, right? And so people were celebrating it. But actually, winter solstice is celebrated on December 21st or 22nd, not the 25th. And so I love it when people try to criticize Christians for celebrating Christmas on the wrong day. It's just not true. But the Roman Emperor Aurelian established Sol Invictus as a holiday, actually on December 25th in the year of 274 AD. So that's when uh, Sol Invictus was established officially as a holiday on 274 AD, which was way after Christians had already been celebrating the birth of Christ. So, Mike, I want to get to what does this hearken us back to then? Why all this attack on the idea of Christmas? 
It harkens us back to this idea of joy. And if I say joy, it brings, us, it brings something out of us. Remember, one of our staff members asked me because he was going to do a teaching for the youth group, what's the difference between joy and happiness? And that's something that we all think about, don't we? Happiness is maybe sometimes you just get the brand new iPhone out there or the Samsung phone, whatever you're into. And you might equate that with happiness. But no one goes, this is my joy. And what's the difference? And people have been thinking about it. But it harkens us back. Seasons like the Christmas season especially harkens us back to a time of joy. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about joy. And I think this is really important for us to kind of meditate on. All joy reminds... It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. So joy brings us to other places, was his point. Can either hearken us back or point to something in the future. If you start connecting the dots, then you see why Christmas is such a joyous occasion for the whole world. So why the attack on Christmas and what is it really pointing us back to and why the earlier times? And today's passage really answers both those questions. In verse 7 and 8, it says Isaiah, he was prophesying like 800 years before Christ. He was prophesying about the Messiah in verse 7. I'm going to start with verse 7. I'm going to skip 6 for now. It says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There is a covering that's cast over all the peoples. There is a veil that is spread throughout all the nations. What is it? It's COVID. No, it's not, it's not COVID. It's, it's death. It's death. It's death. And speaking of COVID, over 800,000, 800,000 people in the U.S. have died from COVID since we knew about it and started tracking it. And because of this virus, much of the world has gone into a state of panic and anxiety 800,000 out of 350 million is about 0.2% of the population. However, however, I'm not saying this is uh, negligible. However, even though it's 0.2% of the entire population, because of this one virus, every single statistic on the leading causes of death ticked up in 2020. COVID deaths were introduced, yes, in 2020, but every other single leading cause of death ticked up in 2020. Heart disease deaths are up. Cancer deaths are up. Chronic lower respiratory diseases are up. Stroke deaths are up. Alzheimer disease deaths are up. Diabetes deaths are up. Poisoning deaths are up. Kidney disease deaths are up. Influenza and pneumonia deaths are up. Suicide deaths are up. Homicides are up. Every single death statistic, every single leading cause of death statistic has ticked up. And you have to wonder what is going on in the world. 
I'd like to propose this. If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, do not be moved by your anxiety. If you're a Christian, do not be moved by your anxiety. You can make informed decisions with caution. I don't disagree with that. I actually support that. I think that's wonderful, and I respect that. But to make your decisions out of anxiety is a sin. It goes against everything that the gospel is teaching. It goes everything against that the gospel here in verses 7 and 8 is teaching. And the gospel is that there is a Messiah that Isaiah is prophesying about. The Messiah will swallow up death. And what is that? This is anything and everything that darkens life. That's why it's called a covering and a veil. And I hope we understand that death isn't some transitory experience that you'll go from this life to another or you'll go into nothingness or meaninglessness. Death is the punishment for sin. In Genesis 2.17, God had already showed us what the punishment for sin would be. But, if, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is the evidence of the curse imposed as a consequence for sin. So who does it affect? In Romans, Paul writes this, as it is written, none is righteous, not, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And later on in that chapter, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Messiah will show up and he will swallow it all up forever. And to swallow it all up means he's going to make it into nothing. Not only that, he will then wipe away every tear, is what we've read. It's also in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The things that gave us shame and reproach, those things will be taken away by God. There are things, though, as long as we live in this world, no matter what time or era that you lived in, even if it's 2021, or the industrial era, or the Victorian era, or the Roman era, whatever era you lived in, there is a time, and that, that, those times will bring us reproach and shame. But here's what the Word of God says. God will take away that reproach so that we could live in true dignity as his covenant people. And this is what the people of God will say. In verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We will live and rejoice in Jesus Christ's salvation. We live trusting in God, and we will enjoy his salvation. You know, this passage is called the Messianic Banquet. And this prophecy harkens back 
to the meal. So even this prophecy harkens back even further to the meal that Moses celebrated with the elders in Exodus 24:11, because it pointed forward to the coming of the messianic king. This is Isaiah prophesying the coming then of a new covenant. And with the coming of a new covenant, there is this image that is given to the people of God. And this image is of a glorious feast. We go back to verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is a feast of rich things, pure and aged wine, the expensive stuff. And the feast is prepared, it's prepared by the Lord himself. This isn't some quick or cheap meal that you eat on, a, on the go. It isn't a crust of bread with a glass of water. This is the finest of things that is prepared for his people. That's the image that's given. That's verse 6. That's the image that's given to his people. When the Messiah comes, there's a banquet that he brings. And it's alongside this feast that he will remove the covering and veil. So it's alongside the feast that the covering and veil is removed. The darkness of death that had covered us for so long, there will be a resurrection from the dead because death will be swallowed up in victory and the Lord himself will wipe away every tear. If you have received this gospel... We live according to this truth, and we proclaim this good news to all. When? All the time. This means that our words should sound like good news, and our actions should sound like good news. And when we celebrate, we should celebrate it like it's good news. That's why on Christmas, give the best gifts. Eat the best foods. Wear the best clothing. And by that I mean the ugliest sweater. Get together with your loved ones. And some may have objections because of fear. Then maybe we'll go overboard and get drunk, which is a sin. But there is a way to drink without getting drunk. There is a way to shop without running over other shoppers. There is a festivity in eating without giving into gluttony, because this is a time of celebration. Then let's act like it. You know, when the reformers cleaned up all the holidays that were in the Roman Catholic traditions, all these festivals, they would, they would celebrate all these things, like, you know, this person dropped a handkerchief, we have a day to celebrate that. They took it all, and they boiled it down to five celebrations, or five evangelical feasts are what they called it. And these are Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And Christmas was taken as a joyous feast because it commemorated the time where God came to us here on this earth. And by Jesus coming to this earth, he answered every great question that the philosophers had. And so that's why we celebrate. Celebration it's about breaking out the fine china, using the good wine, using great wrapping paper for gifts, getting to eat that nice buttery steak, eggnog, fudges, charcuterie boards, whatever you want, putting up the most lit tree, and giving each other the best gifts. 
And remember, if you're afraid of sinning, the sin of envy, gluttony, or debauchery, just remember that sin isn't in the things. Sin is in the heart. That's why you have to get your heart right. And when God says to celebrate, then celebrate. So here's my tweetable line that I, I, I probably would tweet, but it's party and do not sin. That's what it is, party and do not sin. But the point is to party. Why? Because of what just happened. So what should our celebrations look like? What does it hearken us back to? In our celebration, we hearken back to when we were saved by the mercy of God. We hearken back to the prophecy of death being swallowed up. And we hearken back to when the angels sang of the newborn king. Celebrating Christmas is urging people to pull over and hear the angels sing. Christmas is about God promising to us far more than we, we could have ever believed. Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And the promise of Christ is that we will be forever in his halls, celebrating the victory he has won for us with the finest of things, but with the great and mighty God. There is a song, and I was contemplating whether to sing it or not. Um, I haven't sang in front of this congregation in some odd years. My voice is going now. It's pretty much trash because I speak every week. But there's this really beautiful song, and you just have to hear it with the melody, not just the words. And it's, it's called God Rest, You Merry Gentlemen. And, you know, you may have heard this. Where the comma is is very important. It's not God rest you, comma, merry gentlemen. It's God rest you, merry, comma, gentlemen. And that's why it's so important um, that the comma, the punctuations are important, right? And so it's God rest. It means keep. God keep you, merry. God keeps so you. This, this song is addressing all these gentlemen that may be out there in the cold, that kind of thing, who are still working. And it says, God rest you, merry. Don't, because what, 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 what's the point? If we say celebrate Christmas, and then you may, maybe it's not so merry. But the song is about God will keep you merry. That's what the song is saying. God will sustain your joy. So even the celebration, God is going to sustain. It was written in the 1600s, and I think that there's a reason why it's still sung 400 years later. Listen to the music. What is it hearkening back to? Listen to the words. What is it pointing forward to? God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for being the reason for our joy. And we thank you for sustaining our joy. We know that this is all because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we reflect on this holiday, help us to celebrate appropriately. Celebrate the King who has come upon this earth, Emmanuel, God, with us. And celebrate the King that is to come again, where you finally take us to where you are, so that we can be with you for all eternity. Help us to remember and celebrate well, and therefore hearken, even those that might be bystanders, those that might look at us, see our lives, and remind them that there is and was a coming and messianic king. Let's take this time to pray, and let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving for what God has given us as people of God, how death has been swallowed up, that we can move forward in joy and happiness, in true celebration as the Lord intended, as he is the host. But let's pray that we can have a heart of thanksgiving and celebration during this time. Let's pray.